Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Lady in Black. I am Danielle. And I'm McKenna. And today we're going to talk to you about a town that is pretty near and dear to both of us. Um, It is located in southwest Montana. We are both from southwest Montana, and we both currently reside in southwest Montana. So the town that we're going to be talking about today is the ghost town of Bannock, Montana. And it was founded in July of 1862 by Pikes Peakers from Colorado. They set up camp by what used to be Willard's Creek. Um, It was named by Lewis and Clark, um, but it is now referred to as Grasshopper Creek because there was a grasshopper infestation when they showed up. So the man began their search for gold and they staked claims and they attempted to keep it a secret, but they failed because by spring of 1863, the town's population had exploded to 5,000 and it was named Bannock after the Bannock Indians in the area. 5,000 people? 5,000 people. That's a huge jump. It's massive. In like nine months, probably. Yeah, that's a short amount of time to grow that big. I No, thank you. So the um, government official that was actually in charge of managing the, like, name papership for papership. Oh, my God. The uh, paperwork for the town. Where did ship come from? I have no idea. Oh, it's been a long day. So he fucked up. And it was supposed to be named B-A-N-N-O-C-K, like the tribe. However, he changed it to B-A-N-N-A-C-K. That's a... He really really messed that one up, didn't he? I'm just, like, going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that whoever filled out the paperwork had shitty handwriting. I mean, that's a pretty good valid reason, but he definitely messed it up either way. I mean, that or he just couldn't fucking read. Oh, that too. (laughs) So the town was filled with scandal, like, from the start, um, from shootouts, sex workers, and uh, the notorious Sheriff Henry Plummer. Um, It was kind of doomed from the fucking start. There was actually seven hangings in the first 14 months of Bannock being a town. It's a lot for a town that size. Like, that's just hangings. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So, um, Plummer had a really interesting life. Um, He is pretty notorious now because he was allegedly an outlaw that ran a gang dubbed the Innocents, who um, became pretty prominent in the area by robbing gold shipments out of Virginia City, which is another town that we're going to talk about, hopefully while we're there. Yeah, that would be fun. So um, he was born in 1832 in Addison, Maine, to William Jeremiah and Elizabeth Handy Plummer. And he was the youngest of seven. And his father, brother, and brother-in-law were all sea captains. And he was supposed to follow suit. However, he was not capable of handling the rigorous life at sea due to his small build. That really sucks. I feel like he might have had Napoleon syndrome. It's pretty possible. That just sucks that you can't do what your whole family has because you're too small. What's expected of you, but like, poor tiny plumber. Yeah. Can't handle it. So his father died when he was a teenager um, and his family began to suffer financially. So in April of 1852, at 19 years old, Plummer promised his mother that he would head west to the California gold rush and help the family out financially. 
So he sailed from New York to Aspinwall, Panama by mail ship and then took a mule train to Panama City where he boarded another ship that was destined for San Francisco, California. And he arrived 24 days later. 24 days? Could you imagine? I couldn't. That would drive me insane. I wouldn't be able to get anywhere. Could you imagine 24 hours of travel with a Karen? That would be the worst time of my life. I would just, I would risk the sharks. I think I would too. I'd swim. Yeah. I would swim. So once he got there, he got a job at a bakery. And after he made enough money to pay for further travels, he headed to Nevada City, which is about 150 miles north. And within a year, Plummer owned a ranch and a mine outside of Nevada City. And soon he traded some of those mining shares to actually purchase the Empire Bakery. He decided he wanted to be a baker and not a miner. (laughs) That's interesting. I don't blame him. Um, So by 1856, he had thoroughly impressed the residents of Nevada City, and he was persuaded to run for sheriff, and he won. And so at 24 years old, he became marshal to the third largest settlement in the state of California. And he was actually so well-liked that he won re-election in 1857. However, his soon, like his good reputation soon was just tarnished, fucked. So there's two versions of the story as to how Plummer came to kill a miner named John Vetter. The most popular story is that Plummer was having an affair with Vetter's wife, and when confronted by Vetter, the two competed in a duel in which Plummer won. However, the other side of the story paints Plummer in a better light. Um, the second version is that Vetter abused his wife. Plummer was helping her run away. He bought her a train ticket. She was under his watch until she would leave, but then Vetter found them, challenged Plummer to a duel, and lost. So either way, Plummer was arrested and tried for the murder in a case that went before the California Supreme Court twice. Twice. Mm-hmm. But it was a duel. Do you have thoughts about duels? I do. I can tell. <laughs> okay, so my thought is that duels are in a sense, consensual, if that makes sense, because you're both under the impression that either one of you could die during this whole encounter and interaction. So if the guy across from me is faster than me, I'm going to die. So I don't, I don't necessarily see it as murder. I feel like there's a consensual portion to a duel. That's fair. That's fair. So duels are consensual. Got yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> So he was convicted of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin prison. Um, His sentence began on February 22nd, 1859. However, residents agreed with you, and they immediately began petitioning the governor of California for a pardon on the grounds the plumber had only acted in self-defense because he hadn't initiated the duel. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see there being some sort of case for that. Like I said, I feel like there's some sort of consensual component there, and self-defense makes sense, to me at least. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. So while Plummer was behind bars, he met a man named Cyrus Skinner, who's another big name in Bannock's history. And uh, Skinner was behind bars for grand larceny because um, him and his brother, George Skinner, were involved in the 1856 theft of $80,000 worth of gold, along with Big Dolph Newton, Bill Carter, Rattlesnake Dick, Romero or Romero Carter, and who is only referred to in everything as an unidentified Mexican. So I don't know if he's unidentified because he never got caught, 
like he was the one that got away or like what the situation is with that. But he does not have a name that I can find. So that's pretty interesting. Just that there's just one person that they know probably was there, but they don't know who it is. Yeah. So the theft was unsuccessful because Cyrus Skinner and Dick missed the rendezvous because they got captured with stolen mules. Stolen mules? They got captured with stolen, not even the gold, stolen mules. Well, they had to have something to carry that much gold. Yeah, they needed but the, the mules. mules, but the mules of all things to get caught with. I know it sucks. So um, his brother, George, buried half the money and the other half was turned over to law enforcement by Bill Carter. But George ended up getting killed during his capture and never revealed the location of the other $40,000 in gold. So presumably it still remains buried in the Trinities. I don't know where the Trinities are at, but do you want to go to California? Yeah, we can figure it out. Okay. I'll book a flight. All right. Sorry, guys. We're out. So on August 16th of 1859, after serving less than six months of his 10-year sentence, Plummer was released. Um, It was in part due to pressures of the petitions and in part due to his tuberculosis because he had tuberculosis. So upon release, he went back to Nevada City um, and his bakery, but his life really spirals from here um, because he became a regular at the local brothels and he spent all of his money at the brothels. So he needed to make money quickly. He had none of it. So he joined a group of bandits that robbed stagecoaches in the area. And after one incident where the driver escaped with both passengers and cargo, he was arrested. Um, But ultimately due to lack of evidence, he was acquitted. It was just too much of like a he said, he said situation. Wow. That's quite a few already that he's gotten out of. So that's... I mean, he didn't really get out of the first one. He just got off a little easy. Yeah, that's true. So on October 27th of 1861, he was arrested again. This time it was for the murder of William Riley after a fight over one of the sex workers. So before his trial, though, he bribed the jailer and took off for Oregon. And during this trek, he met a man named Jim Mayfield, who was accused of killing a local sheriff. And the two men had a little chat and were like, I figured it out. We know how to get out of jail. So they sent word to local California newspapers that the two had been apprehended and hanged in Washington state. That's pretty, that's a pretty good idea. I mean, if you think about it, that's a pretty solid idea. No one's going to know. There's no way to, there's no way to go double check. No. There's no way to go up there and, like, see if it's true. Like, Washington's big. It would have taken them forever to get up there. Like, that's just not, like, possible, really. No. So, in January of 1862, Plummer reappeared in Lewiston, Idaho, um, with a female companion. And the two stayed at the Luna House, and they worked in the casino. And while Plummer was working, he actually ran into his old cellmate, Cyrus Skinner. And a couple other outlaws, such as Clubfoot George Lane and Bill Bunton. And the three of them were all wanted in Montana at this time. So the group formed a gang, once again, that targeted families in the local mining camps and gold shipments. And during this time, Plummer left the woman who he'd arrived with. Um, She was the mother of three children. So she had to begin working in the brothels. 
to afford food for her and her kids. And she later passed away in one of the sketchiest brothels in town. Um, so I kind of want to add her to his, like, list of misdeeds. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if he wouldn't have left her to fend for herself and three kids, who knows how would it would have turned out. It probably would have been completely different. Yeah, or at least, like, left her some money. Like, And I don't know if he did or not, but it kind of sounds like he just kind of, like, peaced out. Yeah. So he traveled throughout Idaho, and in his travels, he ended up killing another person. This was saloon keeper uh, Patrick Ford. And Ford had kicked the gang out and followed them to the stables where he allegedly opened fire only to be shot by Plummer in return. So locals began to form a lynch mob aimed at Plummer and he was like, fuck that and decided to flee to Montana. So in September of 1862, Plummer's tuberculosis was getting a lot worse and he was like, you know what? I'm going to head home. But he only got as far as Fort Benton because freezing temperatures made the Missouri River impassable. It was just filled with ice. So in order to wait until spring, uh, Plummer got a job at the Sun River Farm in October as a ranch hand. And pretty soon after that, his eye was caught by Electa Bryan. She was Indian agent James Vale's sister-in-law. And after two months, the pair were engaged. Only two months? That seems Mm -hmm. like such a short amount of time, at least for me. I mean, but back then it wasn't. That was probably a long time, I feel like. Yeah. Putting it in their kind of timeline and perspective, probably. Yeah. So in January of 1863, Plummer headed to Bannock after he caught wind of the gold rush. So Bannock had clearly been thrown together quickly, and the buildings housed transients from across the nation, including river pirates, professional gamblers, Civil War deserters, and outlaws. Wait, did you just say river pirates? I said river pirates. What are river pirates? Um, pirates on rivers. So we're distinguishing between ocean pirates and river pirates now? Yes. Why? For fun? <laughs> what is so different about a river pirate based on an ocean pirate? I... Okay, so I two theories. Okay. Um, river pirates stayed on the land and then just like robbed the boats on the rivers or or it was like Jack Sparrow in a little dinghy. Oh god. Sailing the river blue. Oh no. I'm thinking like Pornhub par- Pirates of the Caribbean parody. Love. I don't want to think about that one. Let's just say they <laughs> stayed on land. <laughs> okay. At this point, there was holdups and killings just becoming a normal part of daily life. And Plummer was no different. He quickly rounded up a new gang, the Innocents. And together they robbed travelers from Montana gold camps. And the gang grew rapidly. They expanded to a point that the men had secret handshakes and code words to identify other members. And one of the code words, that, code words that's known is that when they were, like, doing their handshake or shaking hands or whatever, they'd say, I'm innocent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So this led to another murder at the hands of Plummer. While drinking in the local Goodrich Saloon, Jack Cleveland, who felt like he was scorned by Plummer over the love of Electa Bryan, he decided that it would be such a good idea to tell the patrons just who Plummer really was. So he began to taunt him about his outlaw activities and 
he was verbally warned and he kept going. So Plummer fired a warning shot inside the saloon. And after the warning, Cleveland didn't back down. And instead, he went to draw his pistol, but he was too late. Plummer's pistol was already out. So Plummer shot Cleveland and he lay on the floor of the saloon bleeding. Cleveland was then taken to Hank Crawford, the local butcher's house, where he later died, but not before Cleveland told Crawford of Plummer's corruption. I feel like that whole sequence of events was a really bad idea. I'm not going to lie. Absolutely. I feel like Plummer's probably the last person that I would taunt. And then try and rat out. Yeah. Yeah. So three hours after the gunshot, Cleveland is dead. Plummer's in jail. But lucky Plummer, a witness came forward stating that Cleveland had threatened Plummer, allowing for Plummer to be acquitted. So once again, scot-free. Yeah, he gets, he gets off with gets it. Gets off scot-free. So in the late spring of 1863, there was now over 10,000 men searching for gold in Bannock and along Grasshopper Creek. That's so many people in that area. Yeah. I mean, it's not a very big area. No, it's not. And that many people packed in there, I'm sure it was not... A good time. No. So lawlessness was rampant, and most citizens feared for their lives. So two men decided to step forward to clean up the town. Henry Plummer and the butcher, Hank Crawford. However, Plummer lost to Crawford, which pissed him off. So he decided that it would be a great idea to go on a fucking manhunt after the newly appointed sheriff Crawford. Um, But Crawford was warned and he shot Plummer in his right arm, which was his shooting arm. And Plummer, rather than backing down, just learned to shoot with his left and turns out he was just as dangerous as he was with his right. That's insane. If I think about me trying to do anything with my left hand... I can't hardly write my name with my left hand, let alone learn how to shoot a gun and shoot it well. Same. There's no fucking way. There's no way. My left hand is barely functional. Yeah. So once Crawford caught wind that Plummer was just as well off as before, he turned in his badge and he fled Bannock. He got the fuck out. Smart man. Seriously. So unfortunately, that means that on May 24th of 1863, a new election is held that names Henry Plummer as Sheriff of Bannock. So Buck Stinson and Ned Ray, two of Plummer's outlaw henchmen, were immediately named deputies and unknown to the people of Bannock. The innocents, led by their sheriff, grew to over 100 members. That is so many members for one gang. Yeah. And like, mind you, they would be spread out between a couple other areas. However, Even if there's only like 75 of them, 75 in that area that are just part of one gang is a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty significant number. Mm -hmm. And on June 20th of 1863, Plummer ended up marrying um, Electa and they moved into a log home in town. However, a few months later, Electa left Bannock and her husband to go live with her parents in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And that could be because Plummer's promise to clean up Bannock was completely in vain because over a hundred murders took place in the town in the months following his election. Yeah, that that's pretty significant. It might not have been safe for her to stay there. No. So 
The innocents continued to wreak havoc on the mining communities of Montana, and all witnesses to their crimes were killed. They did not leave anybody alive. And Plummers and his men decided to erect the town's gallows, which you can still go see to this day. I think that that was a last-ditch fucking effort of, like, see, we're trying, even though they weren't. Yeah, and I mean, just kind of like, a, oh, we put in the effort and we built this. It's not going to do anything, but we put it here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just seems, it seems pointless. Um, but things only got worse for locals because Plummer was then appointed Deputy U.S. Marshal for the Idaho Territory region in August of 1863. What's the Idaho Territory region? So that would have probably, like, I don't know the exact lines, but probably would have included, like, Idaho, a big chunk of Montana, maybe, like, Wyoming. So a pretty large area. But yeah, a big area. I mean, even Idaho as a state is a large state. Yeah, and then but you he's add up in more. Bannock, so you add that section of southwest Montana. That's a large area. So locals were finally pushed to their breaking point because crime just kept getting worse. Um, now under Deputy Marshal Plummer, and on December or in December of 1863, citizens in Bannock, Virginia City, and Nevada City joined forces and created the Montana Vigilantes. They were done. So these masked men would pay visits to unsuspecting outlaws in the middle of the night, warning them and hanging skull and crossbone posters with the numbers 3777. And these numbers are still prevalent in Montana today. They are featured on the shoulder patches of the Montana State Highway Patrol officers. However, nobody actually knows what these numbers mean. There are four main theories. Okay. The first theory is that people believed that the numbers like 3777 represented the three hours, seven minutes, and 77 seconds the vigilantes gave to outlaws to get out of town. The next theory is that if you add 3 plus 7 plus 7 plus 7, it equals 24, which could have been the number of hours criminals had to leave town. Another idea, which I think is very interesting and could be possible is that the numbers are actually created by the Freemasons. Three is the number of Masons that are required to form a lodge. Seven was the ideal minimum number in a decision. And 77 is the number of Masons in Montana at its first meeting. Yeah, that one sounds pretty good. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. It's, yeah, it's possible. So then the last one, which is my absolute favorite, is that they could symbolize the dimensions of a grave. Three feet wide, seven feet long, and 77 inches deep. I'm probably partial to that one, to be honest with you, because what a more ominous way to show these outlaws that they need to get out or die. Exactly. Like, that's just being like, get the fuck out, or that's what you're going to spend the rest of eternity in. Yeah. Um, but the vigilantes ran hard and fast and they ended up hanging around 25 men. And one of them was Erastus Red Yeager. And he pointed a finger straight at Plummer and named him the leader moments before he was hanged. So I'm going to note right here that there's actually no proof that Plummer was the leader of the innocents. There is no proof that he was not the leader of the innocents. Um, it could have been like a last ditch effort to save himself by red of like, let me name the leader so that you don't kill me. And maybe I just do jail time. Yeah. I could see either one being possible. Yeah. 
So after the accusation on January 10th of 1864, between 50 and 75 men arrested Plummer and his two deputies, Buck Stinson and Ned Ray. That's a lot of people to bring in three guys. I'm just going to yeah. put that out there. But I mean, Plummer's pretty fucking deadly. Yeah, that's Clearly. True. So after he was arrested, he was housed in the jail that he built. And he was in the front cell in the two-stall jail. And his view, which is still the view today, was of the gallows he built. The same gallows where he would meet his face or his fate. So when you are inside of this jail and you're looking out, literally your only view is those gallows. The window is like the size of a sheet of paper, maybe, and it has bars on it, and it is just a clear, straight shot to those gallows. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that you can see, so I couldn't imagine being in there and that being the only thing that you're able to see. like a psychological mind fuck a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, okay, so Ned was the first to hang, um, followed by Buck, and both men protested the entire time. And then legend states that right before Plummer was hanged, he claimed that he would bring back his weight in gold if they were to let him go. So whether this is a rumor or not, um, most people take this as Plummer's confession to his numerous crimes because there's no way that he would have had that much gold being the sheriff if he was innocent. Yeah, I mean, it puts a pretty big case to the fact that he was, in fact, the leader of the innocents because there's no way that he had that much money without being part of something. Exactly. So all three men were left hanging until the following day. And Ned and Buck were buried straight into the ground in shallow, unmarked graves um, in Hangman's Gulch, which is just behind the gallows. And Plummer was actually uh, placed into a simple wooden coffin and buried alongside his deputies. However, it was still an unmarked grave. I don't know why Plummer got a coffin, and they didn't. I don't know, but it definitely sounds like a recipe for disaster to me. Yes, and it gets worse. (laughs) Because rumor also states that Plummer's grave was desecrated not once, but twice. Oh, man. The first time was by a local doctor who removed Plummer's right arm, searching for the bullet from previous Sheriff Hank Crawford. Legend does state that he found it. It seems a little weird to me to just take the right arm, but... Right? Like, just chopping it off to take back to your place? Yeah, and search for a bullet. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Um, And the second one's worse. Oh, no. The second time was by two men who'd been drinking, and they decided it would be a good idea to go dig him up, pop off the top of his coffin, and sever his head. And not only did they sever his head, they also took it to the bank exchange saloon, and it remained on the back bar for a few years until the building burned to the ground. His head remained on the back bar? Allegedly. Oh, man, that is a lot to, for a few years? Mm -hmm. That is a long time. I would be so fucking pissed if I was a ghost. Yeah, absolutely. I'd haunt the fuck out of that bar. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he burned it down. (laughs) Maybe. But then there's another theory, and I don't believe it for, I don't believe it to be completely honest with you. Um, This theory states that the skull was sent to a scientific institution out east for research. I 
think that there would be documentation if that happened. Also, why the fuck would they only take his head? It wasn't at a point in time where they were, like, researching brains to, like, like brains of killers. Like, Yeah, it doesn't make sense that it was just his head. And there would have had to been some kind of paper trail to some extent. And there's none that I could find. Like, it's just kind of like a random rumor that floats around. So I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that one. Um, and his ex- So his estranged wife, Alecta, um, she actually learned of his death via letter. And interestingly enough, she maintained his innocence until her death. All the way until her death? All the way until her death. And I have a few theories on that. Okay. First theory, he's actually innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Which is possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. Exactly. It doesn't seem very plausible, but it could be. It could be. The second is that she just didn't know what he was doing, and that might be why he sent her away. I could see that if he just didn't want her to know the things that he was doing and, and was sent like, her away yeah, so that she would never find out. What perfect time than when there's a, like a hundred murders happening in your tiny town. Yeah. Um, the third theory that I have is that she did know, but she couldn't admit it, which is common even to this day with family members and friends of people who commit horrific crimes, they just can't believe it. Yeah. Those are all possible. Mm -hmm. But either way, whatever way it was, she never believed for a minute or never admitted that he did anything. Um, And there is no proof that the Montana Vigilantes plumber gang hangings had really any effect because evidence showed that organized crime only got worse after the hangings. They got sneakier. They got smarter. Just got worse. Um, The vigilantes were ruthless, though. They went so far as to dispose of people who opposed them. Um, One man, his name was Bill Hunter, shouted, shouted into a mining camp that anyone who was pro-vigilante was a strangler, and his frozen body was found three weeks later attached to the limb of a cottonwood tree. Three weeks is a long time. Yeah, and I don't know if it took other people three weeks to find his body, if it took the vigilantes three weeks to even find him to kill him, or if they had him for those three weeks. I have no idea. Yeah, three weeks is a long time to find a body. Now, many people believe that Plummer's ghost still wanders the town that he once, quote-unquote, watched over um, for a meeting of violent, possibly unjust death, to being buried in an unmarked grave, to the desecration of his grave. It wouldn't surprise me if his spirit wasn't at rest. Yeah, there's a lot of things that happen that just are not a recipe for anything good for his spirit to be able to be at peace. Exactly. And people have claimed to see Plummer, speak to Plummer, and ghost adventurer Zach Baggins claimed to be plagued by the spirit of the rogue sheriff during his visit to the historic town. So we will talk about this episode a little bit um, at the end. Um, I have some thoughts which we will get into. I have a lot of thoughts when it comes to Zach Baggins, but I've got yes. thoughts on that specific episode. <laughs> okay. Um, Plummer has been reportedly seen inside one of his favorite places during his life, which is the Skinner Saloon. 
And there's also a photo taken inside the church um, that shows a faint outline of a man sitting in one of the seats. Um, and it kind of looks like there is like a mustache and he's wearing a cowboy hat. So a lot of people believe that this photo could have captured Plummer in all of his ghostly glory. However, should be noted that throughout its years, most men residing inside of or around Bannock would have worn cowboy hats and many would have had mustaches. Yeah, so it could literally be anybody. Anybody. They still have cowboy hats and mustaches. Like, that's just the area. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't lend itself well to actually particularly being plumber. No. And now for Bannock's most popular and well-documented ghost. We are going to step away from the sheriff um, until the end, because obviously that's about the end of his story. He's dead now. (laughs) Um, And this ghost has taken up residency inside one of the most prominent buildings in Bannock, the Hotel Mead. Built in 1874, the hotel was originally the home of the Beaverhead County Courthouse. And Bannock was the first host of the Beaverhead County seat before it was moved to Dillon, which is approximately 30 miles southeast in 1881. And then until 1891, so 10 years, the building remained vacant until it was purchased by Dr. John Singleton Mead. And Dr. Mead transformed the building into an elegant hotel filled with numerous rooms, a large kitchen, and a dining area. So you can actually see this expansion pretty clearly today. Um, it's pretty obvious where on the building he did his expansion. And during the hotel's time, it held many uses um, from housing visitors and short-term guests to actually transforming into a makeshift hospital during the smallpox and typhoid fever epidemics, Um, which is usually also the recipe for a haunting. Yeah. Uh, The building still stands. Um, You can see it. You can actually go in and you can go into most of the rooms and kind of wander around. It's very beautiful. Um, For the resident ghost, uh, this ghost is none other than 14-year-old Dorothy Dunn. Um, Dorothy Dunn, her cousin Fern Dunn, and one of their friends, Ruth Warnick, decided to take a dip in one of the dredge ponds on a really hot day. It was August 7th, 1916, and unfortunately, none of the three girls could swim, and they all waded out too far, stepping off a steep ledge into deep water. There was a local boy. His name is Smith Paddock. He was 10 years old, and he was wandering nearby and was able to pull Fern and Ruth to safety, but Dorothy was not as lucky. So she was drug out by Smith, and then she was carried to the hotel where they attempted to revive her, and then she was laid to rest in the Bannock Cemetery. Um, I don't know if she died in the pond, if she died on the way to the hotel, or if she died in the hotel. Yeah, I mean, if they tried to revive her, it kind of would make sense that she was still somewhat alive, hopefully, at the hotel. Unless it was like a panic of, you just can't accept that she's dead because she was so young. Yeah. Um, But she does have a couple other ties to the hotel mead. The first is that her um, her mother actually worked in the hotel. And the other is through her close friend, Bertie Matthews. Um, her father ran the hotel. And Bertie was actually the first person to see Dorothy. She was upstairs in the hotel when she saw the apparition of a young girl wearing a long blue dress. And she said that she just like immediately knew it was Dorothy. 
Yeah, that's crazy that you can immediately tell somebody even in the afterlife. I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that much, though. You hung out with this person all the time. If you see a ghost, like, if it's a full apparition, because it's also really quickly after her, like, passing, if you saw a full apparition, I feel like it'd be pretty easy to tell, like, oh, that's one of my best friends. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Um, but the hotel uh, closed its doors in 1941 um, as a hotel. Obviously, you can still go inside of it today, but most visitors still report seeing Dorothy through the windows and on the second floor. Um, there have been numerous claims of cold spots inside of the hotel, as well as children attempting to talk to the young girl in the blue dress that their parents never saw. Wow. Yeah. So apparently she's a little bored in the afterlife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't blame her. I'd want somebody my own my own age to play with if Absolutely. I was in that situation too. So I feel like that town is probably mostly filled with like old men and yeah. women. It'd be horrible. Yeah, you definitely need someone your own age every <laughs> once in a while. Um, but Dorothy is not the only restless spirit said to be wandering the empty halls and rooms of the Hotel Mead. Oh boy, is this one nice? Not so much. Well, maybe not. Don't know. Okay. Question mark. We'll just, we'll find out. So the front room on the second floor is now locked to visitors due in part to the paranormal phenomena in the room. Um, and it may hold the spirit of another woman. This woman is said to be dressed in black and is seen looking down on visitors walking the street below. Not much is known about this woman, um, but I will actually admit I have seen her um, on more than one occasion. You've seen her? I have seen her. Um, and every time I've seen her, I've like gone upstairs thinking like my first thoughts always been like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that room's open. So I run upstairs and all the doors are padlocked shut. And then I'll go back downstairs because then I'm like, oh, well, maybe it's like a tarp that's draped over something and like look, you know, go back to the same spot outside, look up. There's nothing in there. It's gone. Well, I can't believe you've seen her. And I know, even when we went last February, how excited you were to try and get into that room and see what was in there, and we couldn't. I just straight up was, like, on my knees, peeping through the little, like, keyhole, which was also freaking me out because I was just waiting for something to, like, stab me in the eye because that's a huge fear of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that fear of all of the other ones? Yeah, that fear. Okay. So just another little noty note. Um, before we talk about ghost adventures, um, the bedrock underneath Bannock is limestone. That doesn't surprise me. A lot of places that see, you know, pretty significant amounts of hauntings have limestone somewhere. Yeah. It just kind of soaks up everything. Yeah. It just kind of like holds it into place and like doesn't let it go. Yeah. So ghost adventures it's ghost adventures time it's time for me to shit talk zach baggins essentially which i'm here for so before i really i'm i don't want to just like shit on him because he's a very entertaining pertinent per person person to watch on tv yeah he is but his ghost hunting techniques are dog shit <laughs> no you just you're essentially it up for the camera and I can't stand that you like these tattoos like no no one likes them <laughs> <laughs> no no thank you um but they went to Bannock um it is 
uh, let's see, season 11, episode four. And if you would like to go watch it yourselves, that is entirely up to you. Not going to tell you either way. Um, but they talked to a man named Francisco. And when he was inside of the Hotel Mead, he distinctly remembers hearing behind him. Um, he's standing on like the second floor right in front of the stairs. And he hears a little voice go, hi, daddy. So he like turns to look and then feels something push him um, like down the stairs, but he did catch himself and stopped him from falling. And I will say like for skeptics, yes, he absolutely could have just like heard something and turned around to look and threw off his center, like his center of gravity, like his balance and almost fallen down the stairs on his own. However, when he went home, um, he woke up at like 1 a.m., And he went downstairs and his kid was like running back and forth in the kitchen, laughing and playing with something. And he then had a burning sensation and marks appeared on his back. Like he had some on his left shoulder blade and some on his right shoulder blade. And he does say that he regrets coming to Bannock. I mean, I can't blame the guy. You'd you'd think you're just going on a nice vacation to do something cool with your family and you bring something like that back home. That's terrifying. Exactly. So one person um, claims that they found Plummer and they used a device to talk to him. Um, The ranger kind of says that he doesn't disbelieve, but he doesn't really sound convinced that he believes this guy. Um, Maybe he just doesn't believe that it's Plummer. Who knows? Um, But he does say like something along the lines of like, I know a lot of rational people that have had experiences here, which I think is interesting. Um, then they're inside the hotel Mead during the day. Zach's in one of the rooms and he's taking photos and he gets a photo of something black in the frame that wasn't there before. And they like zoom in on it and it kind of looks like there's a face with like eyes, a nose and a mustache. So he starts like, you know, doing the Zach Beggins thing where he's like kind of jumping around and all excited and stuff. And then they hear a noise in the um, kitchen area and they run in there super fast and a drawer that's like on the bottom of the stove had popped open and there's fresh dust underneath the drawer. So could have been something paranormal. They could have jolted the floorboards when they were walking around because this flooring is ancient. Oh yeah. Super, super old. And so any amount of like ruckus that's shaking and moving things is has the potential to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we have all seen Zach Beggins flail around before running around (laughs) a place. Um, so during the night investigation, when they first get into the hotel, they actually hear footsteps upstairs. So of course, Zach sends Aaron, um, because he says Francisco met a demon entity upstairs. Um, so Aaron has to go alone. Poor Aaron. I just want to know what this poor soul did to have to be the one to do all of the weird shit on this show. Yeah, I don't really know, but it's him every time. Like, it, he does not seem to be volunteering. Zach's just like, hey, fucker, you go upstairs. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, poor Aaron. If that was me, I'd be like, you go upstairs. <laughs> exactly. I'd be like, no, bro, you're going up there. We're going together. <laughs> Safety in numbers. Exactly. So later on, um, Nick does hear a man's disembodied voice. Can't figure out what it says, though. Um, it is kind of picked up on one of the cameras, I believe. Um, and Zach does eventually go upstairs, and he has a spirit box and he says, can someone please, or like, can you please talk to me? And the spirit box responds saying, hate, 
hurt. And then Zach feels like someone is holding his arms against the wall. Um, and he immediately thinks that that is Sheriff Plummer. Can exactly. I ask how? Exactly. Like, there's really no proof that it is Plummer. It could have been anybody up there. It could have even been Dorothy. Like, right. yeah, <laughs> honestly, I mean, it could have been so. It could have been the woman in black. It could have been any number of person that died in that fucking town. Right. Um. So then they go downstairs, and there is a bang on the wall, and at the same time, there is actually a light anomaly on one of the cameras. And it, like, moves across and it hits the wall at the exact same time as the noise. Um, So then later on they go into one of the houses. And it's the house that has, like, the full second story that you can go up to. It's not just the one room. And inside of this house, uh, they say, if you want us out of your house, make a noise. And then you can clearly hear the sound of someone running up the boardwalk outside. But there is an camera outside and then they open the door and there's nobody outside um billy and jay go into one of the old houses i think it's the house that has like the dirt floor and the weird wardrobe but i'm not positive yeah that wardrobe was freaky i'm not gonna lie i hated it yeah i opened it at one one time when i was there and i wanted to throw up immediately it was a really bad idea if you would (laughs) have opened it when we went in february i probably would have shrieked and ran away you would have just stood outside of the car in the snow Yes. (laughs) Um, But they're inside of this house and they're setting up at a table with a vacuum tube radio and they see like a, an orb essentially. And they try to recreate it a little bit. Not, not well. He just kind of flashes his flashlight around for a second, but he doesn't try to like get up in the same position he was in or like anything like that. Um, So they just assume it was an orb, but it could have been like a flashlight. It could have been a lot of things. Um, But then they turn on this vacuum tube radio to communicate via the radio waves with spirits. And on the radio, they hear a little girl's voice say, Mama. And this is a residential building that they're in. It is clearly a home. Yeah, there is definitely people that lived there and families everywhere in that area. Yeah. Now for the crying baby house. So we went into this house and I didn't tell you. Why didn't you tell me? Because you wouldn't have gone inside of the house. You're right. I would have made you go alone, but I'm a little iffy on the fact that you didn't tell me. (laughs) That's pretty mean. That's rude. So this house was possibly used as a quarantine house for kids uh, to not spread scarlet fever. So this is the house with the like um, one room, like loft style uh, second floor. Oh, geez. I didn't like that house Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. From the moment I stepped inside of it, I didn't like it. Well, you wouldn't even go all the way up the stairs to the second floor. You stopped when your, like, eyes were just, like, peeping over the floorboard so you could see and you wouldn't come up there with me. Yeah, something fell off. I kind of felt like I was going to fall. I know that it was fully enclosed on the stairs, but I I felt like I was going to fall. Yeah, so um, people will be inside of the house and they can hear what sounds like kids crying. And they'll go outside, and you can sometimes hear kids crying inside the house when you're outside of it. Um, People have also seen shadows, like, going up and down the stairs. They have seen shadows up on the second floor. They have been up on the second floor and seen, like, something kind of peep up over the floorboards, like, on the stairs. Like, it's watching them. And when people are downstairs, they have heard footsteps 
Like somebody's walking around upstairs and then they'll go to check and there's nobody up there. It's a little terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I figured you wouldn't like that. Yeah. Which is why I didn't tell you. <laughs> Please tell me next time. Well, you're probably not going to go in there next time. I'll have to go alone, which yeah. is fine. I don't think I've ever gone there alone and I should do that. So, of course, they send Aaron out by himself again because obviously um, and he's walking around the streets and he's got an ovulus and over like a 20 minute period, he gets two voices and then he gets another voice a little bit later. And the first voice says six. The second says men. And then the next voice that comes through says apart. And I'm going to note that there are five of them. There's only five of them. Um, so Zach claims that the third might be the spirit of Henry Plummer who has attached himself to Zach. Oh, boy. So we have been plagued by the ghost. It is attached to us. There's a lot going on with this uh, Plummer man. Yeah, seriously. So Zach decides to go on the hunt for the sheriff. And I can't tell what buildings he, building he's in. Um, but he hears something like kind of moving behind him. And then you can hear two knocks. So he assumes that this is the sheriff. <laughs> yeah, because nobody else besides the sheriff is ever going to knock on anything in existence. Well, and like Bannock is one of those places where you can be one of the only people there and it feels busy. Yeah. In kind of all of the buildings, you feel like you're just kind of being ushered from one building to the next. You feel very rushed. Like when we were there in February, there was only like three other people in the entire park. And the whole time I just felt like, oh, go quick, go quick. Like, oh, next building. Okay, let's go. Like it, you just feel like you're being rushed along and like you can't hang out somewhere. Like it feels rude to like stand in one of the houses for too long, even if you're the only person in the house. Yeah, it definitely is an odd feeling. It's definitely uncomfortable. So... Inside some of the buildings, they just set up X cameras because there was no way that they could investigate all of them. So they put one inside of the Skinner Saloon, and partway through the night, you can actually hear old-time music. It sounds a little distorted, but it is you can still like distinctly tell that it is old-time music. And I feel like that's probably just a residual haunting. Like that bar especially feels very lively. Yes. And um, it would just kind of make sense to me if it was just like a residual haunting of just, you know, it's limestone, like the imprint of somebody playing the piano, drinks being served, people milling about, like. Yeah, I mean, that's, it was kind of the center of the town and the life of the party for a long time. So it would make sense that the yeah. things that went on there are still going on. Are still going on. So. They also have um, an X camera in the school with a REM pod, and you can hear tapping in the background while the REM pod is going off, which is interesting because I have also had an experience inside of the school. Yeah, I remember you telling me that when we were standing in the school, and it felt very weird standing in the place where you've had those experiences. And I was standing in the exact spot, same spot. Yeah. So... Um, I was standing in kind of the middle of the room between the rows of desks. I was like facing the blackboard. I think I was taking like a picture of the blackboard because the blackboard still or doesn't still have writing on it, but somebody has like rewritten on it like lesson plans. Um, and I felt like something 
cold, like rush behind me and hitting my, like the back of my knees and my calves. Um, and I like jolted and like looked over and my friend had, had seen a black shadow, like pass behind me at the same time that I felt the cold spot. So it kind of felt like maybe a kid was like getting in the desk and like brushed their knees on the backs of my legs, like sliding in to the seat or something or something walked behind me. I have no idea, but I just think it's interesting that I had like a cold spot right when the person that I was with saw something like move behind me. Yeah, it kind of validates both of your you know, experiences with you feeling it and them seeing it at the same time. There's yeah. two people there to be like, yeah, something happened. Something happened. So you guys are going to have to let us know what you think. Do you think that Bannock's rogue sheriff is still wandering the streets or is it just a residual, residual vibe out there? Um, we do have an Instagram. Like I said, I'll post the photo inside the church um, as well as a couple others. The Instagram is Lady in Black Podcast. So if you want to head over and follow us, we would appreciate it. Um, we also have an email and a website so you can send over your personal stories or any suggestions of places that you want to cover. Um, the email is ladyinblackpod at gmail.com and the website is ladyinblackpodcast.com. Um, so yeah, if you have any suggestions, any stories, send them on over. We would love to see them. Um, thank you guys. And tune in next Saturday for our next episode. This has been Lady in Black.